Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all here on this beautiful day. My name's Andrew Schaefer, and I'm one of the elders here. And I, as many of you know, Pastor Mike is on sabbatical, so you're getting the B team. But um, anyway, I'm really, really grateful to be here this morning, and I'd just like to start with a word of prayer. Father, Lord, thank you so much for the privilege we have of having your word in our language available to us. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have in it for us. And I just pray this morning, Lord, that you would be the one doing the teaching. Father, give us um, minds and hearts that are open to your word as you speak through your Holy Spirit. Thank you so much for your word that always has an effect. And we pray that you would bless the people here this morning, help them each one to be able to go away with what you want them to learn. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when Kathy and I, my lovely wife, and our four kids went to Senegal as missionaries in 2006, uh, we were fresh from 15 months of intensive language study in France. We were learning French because we had been told that Senegal, um, the national language of Senegal, was French. So imagine our surprise when we got there and found out that actually most people spoke a different language called Wolof. And Wolof is the kind of the trade language of Senegal. It's the language of the, the biggest people group in Senegal. And so we got to work learning some Wolof. We had been told that people really appreciated if we could learn some Wolof because it's one of their own languages and it really could open doors. And so we were eager to at least learn some greetings and some things like that in Wolof. Well, I think we've shared several times before that in Senegal, the traffic is really quite challenging, and in Dakar, Dakar where we lived, um, the best way to get around was to get a taxi. And you negotiated the price, and then the taxi guy was the one who had to struggle with all the, all the traffic. It was also a really great place to practice Wolof, because you could be stuck with a guy next to you um, for a half an hour or 45 minutes or even an hour. And so one of the things I, I wanted to do as I was learning Wolof I wanted to learn a Senegalese proverb, because the Senegalese love these little uh, pithy sayings that you can throw into conversation. And so I picked a proverb and I learned it. This is the one I learned. So you can all say it if you want, but anyway, it's Ndankendank Japagolo Chinyai. And that means, Ndankendank means little by little, Moe Jap, one catches Golo, monkey, in the bush. So you might have heard a similar proverb, basically. So I memorized that proverb, and in the, in the taxi ride, I'd be stuck there, and I'd be going through my greetings with them, and, and then asking how their day was, and how their job was doing, and they would ask me, they'd say, you're not French, are you? And I'd say, no, I'm American, because they would figure French people wouldn't be speaking Wolof. And um, invariably, they would say, oh, you're, you're digging a Wolof, which means you, you understand Wolof. And I would say, um, I'm learning Wolof, it's difficult, but, and then I'd sling this verbal arrow, and they would just laugh and laugh, they'd roll around, they would, they would just, it was just an instant hit, and they would point to me and they'd say, yo, 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 they're going to Wolof, like you understand Wolof, because I had this proverb down. I got so much mileage out of that. Anyway. <laughs> So, and dank and dank, little by little, big things can happen. That's what the proverb means. You can achieve big things by taking little steps. And that's exactly how developing habits work in our lives. God has created us as creatures of habit. 
And of course, there are good habits, right? Anybody who's watched someone play the piano and they can amazingly look at the music and not even look at their hands, that's a wonderful habit. Or if you've ever learned to drive a, a stick shift, right? And at some point, suddenly, you're able to do it without thinking. You can just do that wonderful habit. There are also bad habits, of course. Habits of maybe spending too much time on the phone. That's a, a key one these days, right? Or maybe even worse than that is getting into some really serious addictions that can really impact your life in a really bad way. But good or bad, habits take time. And lots of little steps lead us to something quite surprising sometimes. And I want to talk about habits this morning and what I'm calling habits of the heart. So, warning, deep waters ahead, right? This, this, these verses are challenging. And as I was assigned this passage, I was like, oh my goodness, this is, this is not going to be easy. I'd rather pick something a little easier, but this is where, where we landed. So I, um, I just want to share with you that, you know, this is, what can I say? As I, as I was um, going through these passages, I realized they are challenging. And I'm not necessarily the most qualified person to address these passages. But what I want to do this morning is lead you on the journey that the Lord laid me over the last month or so laid on me as I was walking through these verses and prayerfully seeking what to speak on. I'm just going to share that journey with you today, and I really encourage you guys to study this for yourself. And, um, and I, I hope that the Lord would show you some really wonderful things in it like he has me. So let's go ahead and go to the passage here. As you might have noticed, right, Joe last week, he gave us an introduction to the parable of the sower. He set the scene where Jesus is uh, teaching from a boat, um, in a bay probably close to Capernaum. And um, then he launches into the parable of the sower. Then suddenly there's this kind of interjection in this passage, and then there's the meaning of the parable of the sower. So rather than splitting it up like that, we decided that we would, I would preach on this passage, and then next week and the following week, Joe is going to revisit the parable of the sower. So let me read it. This is actually from the NIV. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. So that's just the intro to that. So the question that the, the disciples had was, why parables? This is really puzzling. Dr. Noah, uh, two weeks ago, I think, he addressed some of that question of why parables are important, because they're stories, right? And people connect with stories. And sometimes, after you've had a presentation or even a sermon, many months later, you may not remember the sermon, but maybe you remember a story that was shared at that time. Because these stories, these parables, were instantly relatable to the people there. They could really understand. So that was one reason. But now Jesus goes a little further as to why he spoke in parables. And he says about this puzzling phrase, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you. You might say, what are the secrets? And why are the secrets of the kingdom of heaven being given to the disciples? Well, Christianity is not about secrets in general, like you might think of secrets, right? It's not like some religions where there might be a secret tome or initiated brotherhood that maybe a few people can get to or maybe an inner sanctum that you can access if you spend enough time, or piety, or something like that. Christianity is wonderfully open to everyone, but there are still things that are puzzling that, are, that God reveals to people. 
So as you read through the Gospels, it's kind of, as we've been looking at Matthew, and we will continue to, you begin to understand that these secrets are actually the truths about who Jesus is and his mission. And also, as we look through the Sermon on the Mount, that God is more concerned with our hearts than he is just outwardly obeying a strict law. He's more concerned with what's inside. So in verse 12 here, he goes on to describe two different sets of people. Here they are, the first, so these are two different experiences of people and two different consequences. The first, they have, they get more, and they have an abundance. And the second, does not have, and even what they have, they lose. So the characteristic of the first group there, which in this context is represented by the disciples, is that they are not content with just a little. And if you actually read the parable of the sower in Mark, it's very clear there that the disciples come to him after he's talked about the parable and say, what does this mean? We really want to understand it. So that's the characteristic. They, they want to understand. They want to grasp it. So the secrets of the kingdom can be found out by those who want to go that step further and ask. And they can understand them and grow as they do that, bit by bit, and dunk and dunk, right? Faith grows in those little baby steps. I appreciate um, in the story in Mark 9, there's the, the guy, the man whose son was uh, possessed by a demon, and he's crying out to Jesus, and, he's, and Jesus says, if you, um, if you have faith, you know, this is possible, anything is possible, and he says, um, he says, I believe, that's what he says, help me in my unbelief, and that perfectly captures this idea of a little bit of faith that's growing, right? We understand that we have some faith, but we want to grow in our unbelief. We want to keep growing in faith. So how about the second group, right? In this context, represented by the crowd, apparently. And ultimately, the religious leaders, as we continue on through the book of Matthew, we'll see that. They also weren't content with a little. They wanted even less. So they just liked the stories, but they didn't want to go deeper. They hear truth from Jesus, but ultimately, they reject it. And in the end, they have nothing. So, the first says, I believe, help my unbelief. And the second say, I don't believe, I don't want to believe, and so I'm blocking my ears. So both of those are habits, habits of the heart, right? And now Jesus zeroes in in the, in the next set of verses on that second group and talks about them. So let's continue there. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You'll be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. This seems kind of puzzling. It was puzzling to me. Um, and some, the, the parallel passage in Mark is a little bit different, but basically it says, you will be not able to hear or make this people's heart hard. Right? What is Jesus saying here? So I think to understand this better, we have to go back to the context of where this quote came from, which is Isaiah 6. And let's look at that. Very similar. This is when uh, God gives Isaiah the commission to go preach to the Israelites at the time when there was lots of trouble in the land. Hezekiah was king. 
um, well, he was one of the kings, Uzziah, others, but the, the whole momentum of Israel was going downhill very quickly. So let's read this. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I, that's Isaiah, said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. So you see that kind of subtle difference there. It's more like saying, make this. Now let's zero in for a second on that word, calloused, right? So, calluses, right? They come from habits. I play bass guitar, and you can see that's a bass on the left, four strings, and they're kind of thick strings, right? Occasionally, uh, Melissa asked me to play guitar, and that's a, a steel string guitar on the right. You can see it looks like an egg slicer, and that's what it feels like on my fingers when I've been playing a guitar when, I haven't, when I've been playing bass for a while, because I don't have calluses worked up on my fingers, and so it can be quite painful. Calluses is when your skin hardens so you can't feel things anymore. Now, that, that might sound like a good thing if you're trying to play guitar, but actually, it can be quite dangerous because when you can't feel anything, you can injure yourself and not even understand that you're doing it. The Hebrew word that's translated callous there actually is the word fat. And I remembered a long time ago reading a verse in the King James that I really didn't understand and that brought it to mind. And I looked it up, and this is that verse, Deuteronomy 32, 15. It says, But Jeshurun, or Israel, waxed fat and kicked. Thou art waxen fat, thou art grown thick. That's not a compliment, by the way, don't use it on anybody. <laughs> thou art covered with fatness. Then he forsook God, that's Israel, which made him, and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. So that word, in this context, the, the fat, it doesn't mean, you know, uh, kind of chubby or something like that, right? It means so fat that you are impervious to God's spirit, that Israel could not even sense when God was talking to them anymore. They had this huge barrier around them that stopped his word getting to them. Their hearts were hardened. And reading the story of Israel, you can see that happening, unfortunately, as you go page by page, through king by king, through generation by generation, they get harder and harder and harder and dunk and dunk. And following that analogy, all of us know that it's, it's, very, it's those little choices of like what you eat or not exercising, right, that start to impact your, your um, body type, body shape, whatever. So, and the same token, it's the, you have to do lots of little choices to work back the other way, right? If you're on an exercise program or trying to diet, right? Those things are hard, right? One is, takes a while, coming back takes a while as well. It doesn't happen overnight. So what is the difference here between people's hearts becoming calloused and actually God making people's hearts calloused? Because it's translated slightly different in those two things. Which one of those is true? And that seems like a very important distinction to me as I was looking at this. So the question is really, what makes a heart calloused? What makes a heart hard. Does God harden a heart specifically, or do we harden it ourselves? And perhaps even the bigger question as you follow that along is, does God want some people to be saved and others not? Do we all have an equal chance at salvation? 
And that answer leads us into those deep waters, right? That is quite hard. People have wrestled for centuries with the answers to those questions. But someone told me once, this thing that I've kept in mind, when struggling with difficult passages, interpret the hard passages in light of the clear ones. And that doesn't mean you abandon the hard passages. You want to dig into them, but don't leave behind the clear passages in Scripture that you know. So we're going to do that this morning, and we're going to talk about several different things that we do know that are clear, right? And the first one is really the foundation of it all, and that is God's sovereignty. He is the creator, he's the only God, and he can do whatever he wants, and we really have to start there. Psalm 115.3 says, God is in heaven, our God is in heaven, he does whatever he pleases. And then in Isaiah 64, yet you, Lord, are our father. We are the clay, you are the potter, we are all the work of your hand. God is God and we are not, right? We didn't choose where we were born or to which parents we were born, right? We didn't get to choose which country we were born in. But this foundation is absolutely critical. And I think every person on the face of the planet Earth has to wrestle with this issue at some point in their life, that God is sovereign and we are not. But let's keep going. Let's not stop there. What else do we know? God is loving and wants people to have a relationship with him. That is extremely clear in Scripture. You know, John 3:16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. Then in 2 Timothy there, God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Matthew 11:28 that we looked at earlier this year. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's an open invitation to those who are sensing that heaviness in their heart. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those are very clear. God, the Father's heart towards us. And the last thing I want to um, talk about, I mean, the last thing that we know very clearly that I want to look at this morning is that God is patient. Here's some verses from Romans and and 2 Peter. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. So it's pretty clear to me, as I was looking at this, that God is sovereign. His heart is for people to come to know him and that he is patient in that process. So now let's circle back to that subject of hardening hearts. Can any of you, as you're sitting there, think of anybody in the Bible that is a classic example of a hardened heart? Pharaoh, right? Everybody says that, right? So as the ten plagues play out in Exodus, God is at the point of redeeming his people from Egypt, and these plagues are coming, and it says very clearly in Exodus that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then it kind of switches, and it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So, you might recognize that dude there. The word hardened in Hebrew is chazak, and it means to strengthen or fortify or to harden by resolve. Actually, in a positive sense, God uses it when he commands Joshua to be strong and courageous. Be strong, that's the same word. 
And it's very interesting, that positive sense. But in the negative sense, right, it can mean that you've built a wall around yourself and you are saying, no way. And that's what Yul Brynner, with his furrowed brow there, is clearly saying, right? He is being stubborn. He is saying, no way. Pharaoh started off being told and believing that he was a god. So he was already starting off with a pretty hard heart towards God. And then as the story plays out, like I said, and dunk and dunk, bit by bit, Pharaoh goes beyond the point of no return, apparently. So it's clear from Scripture that God says at some point to a hardened heart, okay, go ahead. It's like a parent who is struggling with a child who is constantly getting trouble with the police, maybe going to jail. The parent bails them out and bails them out again and bails them out again and then finally says to the child, I'm sorry, but next time, if this happens again... I'm not going to bail you out, right? And that is not a decision that's ever taken lightly. It's the parents saying, you're going to have to face the consequences of your continued rebellion. It's, it's, for a parent, it's a grieving time, right? It's, it's done in love. It's not because you've, you're fed up and you've just you know, run out of patience or whatever. It's just like this you believe is the best thing to do. It's that concept of tough love that is so hard sometimes. We see this in Israel's hardening over the years and God's responding to that, that sin in Israel was building up bit by bit. It was rooting itself down into the culture like a noxious weed. I don't know if any of you have gone to the south or lived in the south. Does anybody know what that is there? Anybody recognize that? That is kudzu. It was introduced to the south, um, I don't know when, like in the 50s or something, as an ornamental plant from Japan. And it really liked the South. And it established itself very well. Kathy and I saw that when we were in South Carolina. Kudzu spreads by lots of different ways. It has rhizomes, it has tendrils, it does all kinds of things. And it has taken over the South. And we saw places like that just completely covered with kudzu. It's one reason why I never order a salad in the South. Anyway, so <laughs> kudzu blocks out all the other plants until nothing else can grow, only kudzu. So Israel's sin was like kudzu. Let's look at what God says at the end of Second Chronicles here, at the end of all this recounting of all the kings. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them, Israel, through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of, of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. That's one of the most challenging, sad verses in Scripture, I think, of that continual hardening process. We don't like even reading through the prophets. Maybe if you're reading through the Bible and you get to the prophets, it's like, wow, there's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of warnings here. But warnings is what Israel needed, right? God cared about them. That's why he sent the prophets to warn them. Warnings are good. Cut down the kudzu before it's too late. Root it out. Burn it. Do whatever you can. But they were just blocking their ears. La, 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 not listening, that kind of thing. And that's why God sent Isaiah to declare to them this dire warning. It had reached the point where the momentum for Israel was like the Titanic trying to steer away from an iceberg, right? It was just, this was really the point of no return. God wasn't saying to Isaiah, go to a, a, a morally good people or even pretty good people and say, too bad, I'm making your heart calloused. No, 
he was going to a people who had habitually turned from him again and again, exercising unbelief instead of belief, ignoring the prophets, blocking their ears, and hardening their hearts. And God was saying to Isaiah, basically, go to them and say, okay, have it your way. So in that sense, whether you translate it as make this people's heart callous or the people's hearts have become callous, you end up at the same place. You'll be ever hearing but never understanding, which is a hard statement of fact. The hardening was complete. We actually see this in the New Testament too. In Romans, I just I took a snippet of this passage, but you read Romans 1, for although they, these people, on the world, in the earth, uh, knew God. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's like hardened, right? Therefore, God gave them over, there it is, in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So God gave them over. There was habitual hardening of the hearts, and then God says, okay. Even in Revelation 19, when Jesus himself comes back to the earth on a white horse, mankind doesn't submit, right? They go to war against him. So, back to Matthew again. Jesus is saying the same thing as Isaiah was saying about the people there. He's going to keep on telling people about the kingdom, and we'll see that in Matthew and the question is now, how will the people respond? How would we respond if we were there listening to that, what Jesus was saying? And like the parable of the sower that Joe's going to talk about, the condition of the soil of our heart is going to indicate how we're going to receive that word when it comes. God's word always has an effect. It's going to bring rebellion or it's going to bring repentance. It's going to bring rejection or it's going to bring renewal. It's going to bring hardening or softening. Just like, if you think about it, the same sun can cause clay to harden and wax to melt. The same word hardens and softens. God's law is good, no question about it. But paradoxically, for the hard heart, it can make a sinner even more sinful. Paul talks about that in Romans 7. 7 to 8. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. It's more challenging verses, right? And as I was thinking about that, what came to mind was one of, these, one of the old West movies. Maybe some of you guys like Westerns, right? Uh, black and white, usually. Think of an old West town out in the boondocks somewhere, and there's no sheriff or anything, and there's guys running down the streets shooting off their guns. There's, you know, killings in the saloon, uh, cattle rustling, all kinds of bad things going on. There's definitely sin in the town, right? And then one day, the music changes, and the sheriff rides into town. And now the sheriff brings law and order to that town, right? Nothing's changed necessarily in the people's hearts, but now there is a very strict law, and you know which side of the law you're on because the sheriff is there. 
And so that's the same, in the same kind of situation with the way God's word is, right? Sin was there before the law was given, but when the law came, right, it was very clear. Nobody has an excuse anymore and say, well, I didn't understand or I didn't realize that that was bad. It is bad because it's very clear. And what happens, unfortunately, in the movies and in real life is when the sheriff turns up, the hardened hearts, they don't say, okay, I'm going to submit to the sheriff. They get even worse, perhaps, and they, they start rebelling against the sheriff himself, and they want to run him out of town or shoot him down or whatever, right? And that's, that's really an indication of how we can be when God's law is given to us. So the coming of the sheriff and the coming of Jesus revealed the condition of people's hearts that was already there. As we continue on in Matthew over the, the, the weeks and months to come, it'll be clear who's going to have the hard hearts and who's going to have the soft hearts. And specifically, we, we, we talk about the Pharisees a lot because they're a very clear evidence of that. Um, I was thinking of the miracle of the, the paralyzed man when Jesus heals him. An absolute miracle. This guy had been paralyzed for so long. And Jesus says, take up your mat and walk. And the Pharisees, right, their response was not, Wow, a miracle. God is here, shown up, you know. It was, he asked him to take up his mat on the Sabbath. How dare he? He was breaking the Sabbath, right? It's almost ludicrous when you think of that. It's like that's all they could see. They had stopped hearing and they had stopped seeing. Even the disciples themselves, um, the big crowd of disciples, not just the, the 12, when Jesus started talking in John 6 about his body and his blood, and that his body was real food and his blood was real drink, right? That was a picture. Um, and some people said, no, wait, that's, that's too far. I'm going. You know, I'm, I'm off. I'm out of here. Whereas the apostles themselves, they said, when Jesus said, are you going to go too? He said, you remember what he said? Um, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. So that's the kind of attitude I want to have, that softened heart that says, I don't get it, you know, I don't understand it, but I'm not going to lean away, I'm going to lean into you, Lord. I'm going to ask questions, I'm going to dig deeper. Back to the question of why Jesus spoke in parables then. Why does he seemingly make it hard to understand his teachings? It's almost like parables are, are a test. He's giving the opportunity to go deeper. And Jesus was constantly saying puzzling things that were either going to make people angry or they were going to make people puzzled and draw them into a deeper relationship as they kind of dug in. Things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, or I am the bread of life, or the light of the world, or how about I and the Father are one. Jesus apparently wants true followers, right? Not just fair-weather friends, not just people who are along for the ride and because they're getting free food or something like that. And he doesn't do that for his benefit. He does it for our benefit. Because when we have a soft heart and we are understanding him, we become more peaceful and more joyful. And best of all, we experience more and more of the blessed relationship with Jesus himself. And that's really one of the biggest tragedies of a hardened heart, is they miss out on that incredible, wonderful fellowship with the Savior. So if you're like me, as I was studying this, the question comes up, how do I know if I have a hard heart? How do we know if we have a hard heart? And perhaps a better question is, are we tending to harden or are we tending to soften? We can't really be neutral. All the little choices we make each day are going to be leading us one way or the other. And I ran across a very interesting quote from Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis as we're studying this in the men's group. 
I want to read that to you. He had some very interesting things to say. He says, Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. Those are really challenging words. And as I was thinking about this, um, I thought maybe it's even worse than C.S. Lewis is saying in a sense because our sin gives us the tendency to harden. If we let go of the wheel, that's the way that we go. We're not thinking about it. Just like the second law of thermodynamics says that things tend towards disorder. Things tend to run down, get more messy, get more dirty, get more disorganized. We tend to rebellion, to not wanting to listen to God and all the way to evil. And wouldn't it be great if it was the opposite? If you guys who are parents know, if your kids' rooms tended to clean themselves over time, right? Or gardens tended to grow nice orderly rows of fruits and vegetables instead of weeds. Or if we tended always to do right and obey God. But if we stop and examine our lives, and as I did this, you can see evidences perhaps of hardening. When we hear God's word and we reject it, just like seed bouncing off the path. Or maybe we read the Bible and apply it to others, not ourselves. We get done reading, we say, change him or change her, not change me. Or we get in the habit of saying no to the Holy Spirit. Or when we're hardening towards our spouse or anyone in our life, maybe we say, it's all their fault or it's always their fault, never mine. Or even bad habits and addictions, the tendency to keep saying yes to ourselves and no to God, right? Those are all things that I can see in my life at different times. Hardening or softening are the two tendencies of the heart, right? Here's the difference. Faith, which is represented by softening, says, I'm tr having trouble believing, but I want to. Please help me. And unbelief, the hard heart, says, I don't believe. I don't want to believe. Leave me alone, Faith gets in the habit of saying, I want you want what you want, Jesus. Help me deny myself and follow you. Unbelief gets in the habit of saying, I know what I want, and I'm going to deny myself nothing. Faith confesses sin, asks for forgiveness, and keeps going. Unbelief excuses, excuses sin, justifies it even, and learns to minimize or ignore it. And both are habits of the heart. And dunk and dunk. So, do we have a choice? Does God harden our hearts or do we? And perhaps the answer is yes. <laughs> Romans 9 talks about this, and I really challenge you to dig into yourself. It's one of the most challenging chapters in the Bible. I'm not going to take a ton of time on it right now because we don't have time. But the foundation of Romans 9 is God's sovereignty, that he can do whatever he wants. He will have mercy on who he wants and harden those he wants. But from the passage, as you read through the whole passage, it seems clear that he is talking about faith and unbelief. 
Israel stumbled and fell, according to Paul here in Romans 9, because of their unbelief, because of their hard hearts that have built up over time. So one way of looking at it, as I came away from Romans 9, is perhaps that God has decided to have mercy on those that have faith and harden those who persist in unbelief, just like a parent does, like we talked about earlier. It's complicated, but one thing we can be sure of is that those who want salvation in Jesus, in Christ, can have it. He doesn't make a sinner do what they don't want to do. Remember the clear messages of the Bible for the heart of the Father. He longs for people to be reconciled to him, and in love, Christ suffered to accomplish that for us. You might wonder, can a hardened heart be softened? Because the stakes are high, right? If you keep blocking your ears, if I keep blocking my ears, there will come a day when it will be really hard or impossible to listen anymore. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, that will lead to eternal separation from God and from all that is good forever. And if you do know Christ, the warning is still there. Believers can get hard hearts, as I was looking in Scripture. Jesus told the apostles they had, a, they had hard hearts when he, did some of, when he did some of his teachings. And consistent hardening for a believer means that our life won't produce fruit. And in 1 Corinthians 3, it's very clear. It says that on the day of judgment, all our works are going to be tested with fire and the things that don't survive that are going to be burned up. All the things that when we hardened our heart, those choices that we made, right? They're not going to have achieved what God wanted to in our lives, and they're going to be burned up. I don't want to enter heaven with no eyebrows and my clothes on fire, right? But praise God, praise God in all of this challenging things, just like it says up here, grace upon grace, God's mercy and grace are so clear. There is hope. In Ezekiel, whoops, did I not have Ezekiel there? There it is, right there. God's mercy is, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And in Ephesians 2, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. And Matthew 19, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. That's when the disciples were saying, who can, can be saved, right? And maybe that's the answer to this question of man's hardened heart. Who can be saved? It's always a gift of God in his mercy and grace. As you call out to him, he responds with mercy and grace. Even in Isaiah 6, it talks about a remnant, a stump from which a shoot is going to grow out of Israel that led all the way to Jesus coming and all the way to us this morning being able to understand the message of hope through Jesus. So I would say, if you're concerned about your hardened heart, you're heading the right direction, right? You're having its indication that your heart is soft, that you really want to do what God wants you to do. The bottom line is, we need God. We need him to give us a soft heart. We cannot do it alone. He even helps us at that first stage of belief of coming to Christ through the Holy Spirit. He's the one who enables us to believe. And if you today are sitting here and you don't know for sure if you died that you would go to be with heaven forever with Jesus, make sure. Talk to someone. Call out to God. Ask him for help. Jesus died on the cross to pay the debt for our sin past, present, and future, and he rose again, sealing our salvation. And we need to repent. We need to turn from what we have done in the past, 
turn to Jesus, ask forgiveness for our old way of life, and believe and trust in him for the future. Basically saying, Jesus, I want you to be the captain of my ship from now on. Then all of us, God helps us through his spirit to continue walking with Jesus day by day, making choices that soften our hearts instead of hardening them. If you have doubts, don't throw in the towel. Tell God, probe for answers, dig deeper, seek help. Remember Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. Let's look briefly then at these last final verses as we close. But blessed your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see but did not see it and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. And we are the, the biggest examples of the blessings of those verses that we have the whole of scripture in our, in our mother tongue. Um, as Bible translators, we always talk about mother tongue, right? English is our mother tongue. We have the whole of scripture. We can understand clearly what Jesus has done for us and all the blessings that he invites us into. It's amazing. We're so blessed to have all those treasures in the Bible that can help us so much hope. So I am in the habit now, and God willing, I will continue, of praying for a soft heart. Lord, show me where my heart is hardening. Keep my heart soft. I want to say yes to Jesus and no to myself more and more. I want it to be a habit, right? So that finally, I don't know if it's going to happen in this life, but I would love to default to obeying Jesus rather than sin, right? That would be wonderful. So let's all look to Jesus, our dear Savior, who knows us and loves us more than life itself. This is a verse that I found that I think is a great one um, for me to pray regularly, and perhaps for you too. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. God is so kind. We don't have to go dig, 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 deeply every day to find sin hidden in the nooks and crannies of our heart. We just need to ask, Lord, show, show me today. Show me my blind spots. Show me where I'm hardening towards people or towards you. And help me today to take steps with you, with your strength, towards a soft heart. Jesus promised that he will carry on that process to completion for us. He is such a great savior. And dunk and dunk, little by little, Day by day, we will have a wonderful blessing that we couldn't have expected at the end of it. And as Jesus says at the end of the parable, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. It is challenging, but it is good. And Lord, you know me. You see my heart. You know the things I struggle with where I've places that I've given ground, habits that I've formed that are not good ones, things that I want you to have complete control over. Lord, I pray for my dear brothers and sisters here today, too, that you would gently reveal to them the things in their heart where they have hardened towards you or to others. Lord, help us day by day. You've promised us your grace, and we call out and ask for it. To give us grace to follow you, to have soft hearts, to live lives of faith and not unbelief. Thank you again for your word. May you accomplish through it what you want. In Jesus' name, amen.